Welcome to In the Thick of It, Profit and Losses weekly podcast with myself, Colin Lambert. And this week, it's an all PL affair as I'm joined by Judy Ross, editor in chief of PL, and uh, we'll be taking you through this week's news. Um, and there's a fair bit of it, actually. But before we start, Julie, I've got a question for you and the listeners. You have time to think about it. I'll give the answer in about 10 minutes' time. Um, we've been reading and hearing a lot about benchmarks going wrong over the last probably six months to a year. We had VIX and so on and so forth. The question is, which benchmark setting has had absolutely no issues whatsoever and hasn't gone wrong over that period of time? So that's something for you to think about. Can I use Google? Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I will be. <laughs> I'm not sure Google will give you the answer. To be it fair. might not. I don't even know how to phrase this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And as we all know, you're always careful what you put in your search engine for Google. You never know what comes out. <laughs> um, speaking of which, when you put oil in, you get some interesting images sometimes. Um, <laughs> we were just talking beforehand. How much did you pay for your litre of gas or gallon of gas? All right, so I drove over to Connecticut, which in itself is a little bit cheating because gas is always cheaper over there. Um, but I had to get the kind of super premium 93 octane, um, and it cost me $2.29 a gallon. So it's like five liters a gallon, so that's about 50 cents a liter. Mm. Uh, Julie Ross there, everybody, <laughs> taking self-isolation to um, no extreme whatsoever. Driving into <laughs> I was wearing rubber gloves and a mask. <laughs> <laughs> and there's an image for everyone on the podcast. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> yeah, I think okay. in the UK, I think we just paid a pound a litre. So that would be five pounds a gallon. So wow. about seven or eight dollars a litre. The only thing is, I, I'm not sure how much lower it can go in the UK because um, what we're basically paying is government taxes, I reckon. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. It's got to be. Um, how are the markets doing? Well, oil has actually recovered, um, which is, I guess, highlights the technical nature of what happened. Um, the thing that I find really interesting about it is, though, is that this is kind of highlighting a modern market phenomena where we are so data-driven and people tend to believe the price in front of their eyes. There's no room for scepticism in markets anymore. So it's, the only way I can describe it is if this was like the commentary, it would be everything's okay, everything's okay, everything's okay, everything's okay, what the hell happened then? Because the data says everything's fine. And yet, you know, if you think about it, um, most of Europe is in lockdown. Parts of the US is in self-imposed lockdown or, you know, sometimes government imposed government imposed lockdown um as is you know huge chunks of asia so people aren't you know using gas or petrol airlines aren't flying so there's going to be a glut of oil on the market because this stuff's already been produced so why what gets me is why we were surprised that people were surprised no sorry we were surprised that people were surprised if mm -hmm. you know what i mean because surely you could have seen any human would have seen it coming you go like hang on there's something wrong here because, you know, this, this oil has been refined and it's been delivered. Who's using it? Yeah, I mean, I know industry is still working, but clearly personal, con personal consumption and airline consumption is a lot higher than we thought. So it was kind of that sort of thing we get now with, with all markets. And it's why we get flash crashes. Because you'll sit there and it'll be like, 
everything's okay. Everything's, the data says everything's okay and we're fine. The minute the data disappears, it's an all or, yeah, it is an all or nothing scenario. There's great data. We're all okay. There's no data. The world is absolutely stuffed. And it kind of happened in oil. Um, you know, beyond the fact that people are saying, you know, please turn up to our refinery gates with a, with a bucket and we'll give you free oil or and pay you $37 for the privilege. Um, so this isn't just an oil market thing. I mean, this is what happens in, you know, in FX and equity markets when we get these big moves. You know, we can sit there and a piece of news that maybe would have been expected. If you go back 10 years, you know, we would have seen certain news come in and people would have prepared for it and there would have been a gradual decline further in the, in the, um, in the price of oil in this case. And when we actually got to the time, it was going to go like, okay, here we go. What we have now is the, I guess the old adage of buy the rumor, sell the fact kind of doesn't exist anymore because what we've got now is there is no rumor. There is no rumor. There's a fact. And from then on, you know, the world goes into chaos. So I think it's kind of a, of a problem around market structure. And it's because everybody, you know, the regulators want information at the same time. Um, everybody should get the same access to information and the data. The problem with that is that creates the herd effect. You know, naturally everybody sits and goes like, yeah, we're all okay. And then something happens and everyone heads to the exit at the same time. Now it used to be that way to a degree, but you always had those smarter ones, maybe with better data um, or those who just did better analysis who would actually be in front of it. And that would actually alleviate part of the problem because not only would that mean less selling or buying, but it would mean at some stage, some of those people who had preempted it would be taking profit. Whereas what we have now is, and I guess this comes back to no risk in the market. What we have now is people sitting there going like, yep, okay, I'm square, I'm square, I'm square. I want to be short. All within the same millisecond. Or I'm long and I want to, I want to get out of it all in the same millisecond. So yes, it's recovered. I'd be very interested to see what happens at the next maturity of the oil because this is a futures market thing. Um, I'd be very interested to see what happens in the oil market. Um, on that point, actually, I did put in my column this week, a couple of, or last week, sorry, a couple of things around um, what's happening in the retail space. So I think, you know, Interactive Brokers reported $88 million hit to their clients who didn't have the equity to cover it. Um, they'll be going after the clients for repatriation, so the hit will be less than that. Interesting one, though, was I put a question out to the audience, to the readership. So eToro have basically put a 100% limit on take profits. So once you, make, once you make what you invested, they're automatically cutting you out. So what they're saying is you can only make a certain amount of money on oil. Now, as I understand it, looking at the website, there was no limit on stop losses. So you can lose as much as you like on oil but they're limiting how much you can make. And I put out the question, why would that be the case? What sort of broker is it that wants their customers to limit their profits? Now, the answers I was getting were along the lines of, um, they might not be able to handle negative pricing, which could be you know, one factor. So they're saying, if it goes negative, we're going to have to cut people out. Um, another one was slightly more libelous, which I probably won't put in this podcast, um, because, uh, you know, for obvious reasons, should we say? 
Um, and somebody else said to me as well, I'm just actually looking for the, for the WhatsApp, which is, I think, as you will agree, how the world exists nowadays. And um, yeah, it's an indictment of the um, ETFs and futures market um, market structure. And as someone said to me, this is um, the futures market's SMB moment, which I found quite interesting. Um, whether it is or not, <laughs> I want to also say what was in that message. If it was a rather rude word about to those, as a real, rather rude message to those that think FX would be better on an exchange, mm-hmm. that I agree with. So. Yeah, it's like it's a. Do you agree it would be better on an exchange or with the rude word? I I agree that I agree in the use of the rude word towards the premise of FX being on exchange. Got it. That's what I thought, but yeah, no, I mean for our listeners, I get, I get, I get the exchange as part of the FX market, absolutely. But um, I've long, long problems with you know. There are a lot of customers that need to hedge in effect. They're not looking to make money. They're looking to hedge. Um, and that doesn't happen in equities, and it doesn't happen to a great deal, great degree in futures in terms of the size of the flow. It does to a degree, I accept. But um, the problem is, is that the minute repeat interest or a big ticket appears on a public exchange, people jump in front of it. You know, look what's happening in the fix. It's no, it's no, it's no surprise to me that the fix price action is happening in front of it because people know which way the fix is going to be and they're trying to make some money off it. So it's, um, you know, there's a good enough example why we shouldn't have it. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's what happens in an algo world, I guess. And that's- well, speaking of algos, <laughs> the FMSB just came out with a, a paper on algo trading and machine learning. Did you get a chance to look through it? Um, I had a glance through it. I think it's, it's been about five hours, but I know some slave driver out there is making me edit a magazine at the moment. I can't. <laughs> um, yeah, well, you I mean, wrote most of it. So it's your own fault. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Always, yeah. I just, I just get my scissors out, start cutting. <laughs> <laughs> I see my work disappear to the floor. Not for the first time in my life, should I say? Um, <laughs> yeah, the paper. Yeah, I, I did have a flick through it. I haven't got into it in any great detail yet. But it looks around, I mean, it's generally looking at themes around the increased governance of algos um, in terms of they want to develop standards of good practice, which the FMSB do. Um, it looks, what is interesting about the paper is it looks at the, the model risk aspect, which is probably not something everybody does because most people when looking at risk will say, okay, it's about the P&L risk. It's about the runaway algo risk. Um, this is more about the model risk and um, especially what happens in illiquid markets. Now, my first thought when I saw it was, well, hang on a second, the Global Foreign Exchange Committee's got a work stream on algos. I hope what we're not seeing here is the first stage of two bodies trying to put out their own standards. Surely they can actually agree, especially as a lot of the people in the working groups will be the same people. Um, but I suspect this is more aimed at fixed income markets because if you think about it, fixed income is actually just really starting to look at algos, um, you know, particularly around you know, the less liquid rate products around credit. So I think it's more aimed at those sort of markets. Um, it was interesting that you're looking at, you know, they're trying to talk about you know, identifying design flaws. 
but then how do you identify a design flaw if your data's not that solid? Um, I don't think there's an issue with P&L because I think, you know, after the flash crash in equities in 2010, so nearly 10 years ago from the flash crash, because it was next month, wasn't it? It was May 2010. Wow. I'm getting old. <laughs> um, but I think most people dealt with that, especially when Night Capital went under afterwards. I think most people dealt with it and they have risk tolerance, you know, P&L tolerances that will shut down all trading if they hit them. And that kind of limits the, the runaway risk of the algos. Um, you know, they have so many trigger points now at which they can be cut off and, and reset. But the model risk is the interesting one because obviously in a machine learning environment, how do you track the model's decision-making or changes in the model's decision-making process? And I think the paper's aiming quite pointedly at that, which I think is a really interesting view, especially when you get into these fixed income and credit markets where you know there's limited data, um, there's lower trade volumes, and quite importantly, there's no central limit order book for a lot of them. You know, we got a club for treasuries and treasuries had a flash crash well, five years ago. Um, but if you get in some of the more esoteric bonds, there's no, there's no club and it's not even exchange driven. I guess this is why regulators are trying to push them to that sort of model. So that, you know, we, if we get CEFs or MTFs or whatever else they want to call them, then they hope to get a club type thing going and there'll be less data. So, Whilst I was looking at it, first of all, thinking, why are they you know, doing this, doubling up the work of the FX committee? I think what they're doing is they're, they're doing a parallel work around, um, I guess, around, say, fixed income. But given they're called the FIC Market Standards Committee, they're taking the first C into account. Um, other than that, I mean, the machine learning, the machine learning aspect is really interesting to me because I mean, in the UK, you've got the senior management regime, which basically means someone has to be accountable for those algos or that machine learning. I'm not sure if they have the same in the US or anywhere else. Maybe that's something we need. Um, but yeah, this is a precursor to some more standards. Um, and whilst the cynical might say, oh, good, more standards, haven't we got enough of those? And there are plenty out there, I, I, I would agree. Um, I still think it's better for um, the market to set these standards than the regulators because we just keep on seeing instances where regulation the unintended, unintended consequences of regulation um, leads to bad market outcomes so leave it with the people who know best um, so good luck to them on that one um, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back to talk bitcoin halving in other words i'm going to shut up <laughs> Profit and Loss is moving industry conferences online. Instead of traveling to London, Frankfurt, or New York, visit profit-loss.com events and register for our new dial-in day online conferences. You can also email info at profit-loss.com for sponsorship opportunities. Okay, so in answer to my question at the start, of all the world's benchmarks, and we've seen problems in most of them, which is the one benchmark that hasn't had a problem? Any ideas, Julie? I'm going to go with benchmark crude, just because you started out talking about oil. Uh, no, because obviously, <laughs> um, to be fair, I think what happened this week, or last week, sorry, when you're listening to this, 
was actually a problem with the benchmark because the benchmark was um, we've got to get rid of all this oil at benchmark. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> the answer, and I find this quite amusing in my sick little mind that it is, is um, LIBOR. I was going to say LIBOR, and then I thought, no, with all the lawsuits, it couldn't be that. Yeah, um, but here's the thing. Um, you know, the new rate sets on there, you know, they're, talk- they're dealing with issues like repo going into negative as people are trying to get rid of collateral as they did try and get rid of the oil. So you've got benchmarks being set on markets that have technical flaws in that um, there will be specific circumstances where the benchmark will not reflect what is for most customers a real cost of borrowing. So it's quite an interesting one. But the LIBOR set where everybody goes, here's my rate. And guess what? Since they paid out billions in fines and, and all the lawsuits, um, the market's kind of tightened up how it sets LIBOR, hasn't it? It's a lot more supervised. So, yeah, there you go. Oh, I should have gone with my gut instinct. Not for the first time. I've been <laughs> saying Harry Hindsight is the best dealer in the world. Anyway, <laughs> moving on. So um, you've just published a piece on uh, P&L, which, is, which was in Schoolbox um, on Thursday, looking at the impending Bitcoin halving in a time of coronavirus. <laughs> I'm sorry, we're recording this on Thursday. I wasn't sure what day it was. <laughs> yeah, the podcast goes live on Saturday. It's good to know sorry, you keep, come on. It's, it's good to know you keep up with your own product output. Hey, it's hard to know what day it is currently, okay? <laughs> cut me some slack. <laughs> That's a fair call, and I will never cut you slack, you know that, as you nor would you do. Um, yeah. yeah, so anyway, we've got the Bitcoin halving coming up. Um, I tend to get a bit hazy on these things. So, first of all, what does it mean? And secondly, how has the current environment, if at all, changed what's likely to happen? Sure. Um, So technically what it means is that um, the number of Bitcoin that are issued every 10 minutes will be cut in half. I think there's um, 3 million left of the 20 million Bitcoin to... Uh, become a you know in yeah. circulation um, and every four years uh, we reach the point where it's cut in half um, so <laughs> there's no exact date when this happens but at some point uh, in May I think between May 10th and uh, May 18th approximately well, who decides um, it was algorithmically you know it's it's an algorithmic uh, I don't know how to say decision by commission. Yeah, okay. oh, <laughs> you know, okay. when, when Bitcoin was first developed, this was all part of its plan. Yeah. Its right. grand so, plan. When, so it really depends on the exact moment the number of Bitcoins gets to right number. Right. Um, so I talked to a wide uh, range of people in the industry to kind of get a sense of whether they think um, this big event will um, be a big event uh, in terms of the price. Um, it was a it was a kind of overall people felt it was largely priced in, although with the caveat that it'll probably see a price bump on the day when it happens. Um, but kind of longer, you know, over over a short term, I guess they didn't think it was going to have a material impact on the price. Um, but longer term, you know, these 
people in in crypto currencies do see a strengthening in Bitcoin generally, um, as well as some of the other assets. Um, We also talked about decoupling. Um, That's been one of the phenomenons I find interesting because so many of these digital assets are so different from one another um, that they tend to track trace Bitcoin that their moves may be more exaggerated because they're in less liquid markets. Um, But uh, largely they track Bitcoin, whether it's going up or down. Well, that's Um, welcome to the uh, tracking era world. The bench. Everyone has to have a benchmark to start something. And if they, you know, if they pick Bitcoin, it's going to be that way forever. Yeah. So I think over time we'll probably see a decoupling, Um, you know, an asset like Ether on Ethereum really shouldn't have anything to do with how Bitcoin's trading because it, it's its its own currency for its own products on its own network. Um, so things like that, I think, because it's an 11-year-old is a young, young industry in this world. So um, I think it's all to be seen. Um, yeah, that was kind of the general consensus was that it's largely priced in, you know, just with the exception that on the day it'll probably be jumpy. Yeah. I, my first observation on that one is with my crypto cynic hat on is that I don't think I've ever met anybody in crypto world that said Bitcoin was going down. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I don't know. Maybe, uh, Nuriel Rabini. <laughs> yeah, but is he really interested in the world? Isn't he just an, isn't he just an old dinosaur like me? <laughs> no, he's getting like I think he's uh, on Twitter. He's always um, challenged to duels and. <laughs> be fun. So, so the decoupling. Yeah, I mean that, that is interesting. Cause, I mean, so with the decoupling, then do do you think that what we'll see is different market structures emerge? If you look at like you know, the fiat world, the equity market structure, as we know, is very different to the FX world and fixed income kind of hovers between the two. If you get this decoupling, do you think different market structures will evolve for each one? Well, I think that's what baffles me about them even being coupled. They are, I mean, although they all use blockchain technology, um, their existence is very different. Um, So they do have different market structures. Um, like I said, Ethereum, I mean, it's a, it's a world computer that people are building uh, applications on top, dApps, um, distrib- decentralized applications. Um, that to me is, is a reason for Ether to exist for people using those applications on Ethereum. Um, that has really so little to do with Bitcoin that it is a different market structure. Um, you know, there's other digital assets that, that behave in very different ways. You know, the CFTC and SEC are always, you know, determining whether things are, are commodities, securities, or currencies. Um, that in it, and, and I think there's digital assets that fit all three, you know, individually fit one of those three buckets, um, which also says they are different market structures. So the fact that they're coupled is the thing that baffles me apart from their digital assets. So people that go into investing in, in crypto, you know, maybe don't see the difference. They just want crypto and whichever one's performing. Yeah. well. 
and it strikes me that that's um, maybe highlighting the ignorance of a lot of people trading in crypto anyway, which is those that were dragged in by the massive rise in Bitcoin. And they sort of look at it and go, well, yeah, okay, well, I can't buy Bitcoin at you know, $7,000, whatever it is today. Um, but I can buy Ethereum at 180. Yeah. And so yeah. They, right, they're trading it because they're thinking themselves, okay, this is just a crypto. It's all going to go up or down. I guess the challenge is that if markets continue to behave like that, then it becomes harder to change that behavior, doesn't it? It becomes ingrained in the market psyche. You know, like just as, you know, if Aussie goes up, Kiwi goes up. Mm. And you end up with these correlations. And if enough correlations get built in, particularly in early days of algorithmic trading, for instance, to go back to an earlier theme, then the challenge is actually getting people out of that mindset so you can actually have this decoupling effects. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of it will be time. It will be which businesses develop using which cryptocurrencies as well. Yeah. Um, on another note, I mean... Libra came out, I think it was last week, um, <laughs> abandoning their whole global currency um, big launch. And it looks like they're going to be launching a series of stable coins instead tied to national currencies. Um, so <laughs> I don't think anybody knows where this is going. Um, central banks are looking at, at digital currencies. Um, yep the way people view that is very different. You know, are they looking, I mean, you know, if you think about cross-border payments, that makes a lot of sense between the central banks. Um, people were talking to me in that article about um, this CB, <laughs> CB, DCs um, being used to distribute the uh, stimulus checks to individuals here in the U.S., you know, some yep. people are getting them deposits into their bank accounts. Some people are getting paper checks. Um, some people haven't got it. Um, and, you know, if the central banks could distribute instantly into digital wallets, would that make more sense? So I think a lot of market structure issues around those bigger questions exists to be uh, determined. Um, but the individual currencies that we have now do have different market, you know, market structures. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, okay. So, I mean, because it strikes me that we, we're in danger of actually flooding the market and losing the sense of direction we're meant to be getting on this. Because, you know, if we end up with 50 central bank digital currencies and 50 credible, and I use the word ill advisedly, probably credible independent digital currencies, how is that different to where we sit at the moment? We're not, we haven't simplified anything, have we, really, beyond the no, fact no, that I mean, you know, the payment is going to be trustless. Say that part again? Apart from the fact the payment, you know, going onto the blockchain uh -huh. is, is, is more efficient. So use that trustless um, um, ethos behind it. Yeah, but, I mean, I think it'll be permissioned. I don't think, uh, I don't think central banks are going to use a, a trustless technology they're going to do permission blockchain same as uh facebook came out saying they yeah. wanted to be uh trust trustless um but they were going to start permissioned um so i i don't know if we'll ever get to a global 
permissionless Mm. Uh, blockchain for a single digital currency beyond what we have with Bitcoin, but Bitcoin is is viewed more as a, a gold, a digital gold, than it is a currency because of its price. As anyone who's tried to pay with anything with Bitcoin can tell you. Yeah, <laughs> the $10,000 burrito example. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I remember trying to buy a beer with it and it was like going to cost me, I think it was eight times more beer. More than the <laughs> someone who drinks a very small amount of beer, like I do, it was a, it was a slightly concerning thing. I guess actually, I mean, yeah, just to close out, the the other thing is something you just said there just struck me, and I apologise to those of you like myself who are actually in lockdown. That's got to be the worst kind of torture, isn't it? You get sent a check from the government, and you can't go out to cash it. Well, there's drive-throughs at the banks. Um, you can go drive-through. So, have you been to? And if you have an app, you can often deposit it via your app. But you do need some technical savvy for that. I was going to say. Maybe my kids can, can do it. Yeah. <laughs> I can do it. I don't think my mom can do it. No, no, no. I'm, I'm definitely sure my mom can't. Anyway, <laughs> on the on the note of uh, mothers, you know, happy, happy, hello to all the mothers out there listening, and I'm sure there's some. <laughs> Um, yeah, okay. Well, on that note, we'll end up. Um, thanks very much for listening, everybody. There actually won't be a podcast next week because next Wednesday, um, we have our London dial-in day. So we have effectively five of these, um, where I get to argue with a lot more people than just one. Um, the week Can I chime in there for a sec? Yep, go on. We have over 300 registered now for next week's, uh, dial-in day London. Um, and we've got a bunch of fun things planned. Um, the breaks we're going to have. Uh, the chat function will be open, um, so you can chat to the speakers on the panel you just heard. You can uh, um, ask questions directly to them uh, during the sessions and then in the chat room after or to the wider group. Um, we'll also do the Profit and Loss Sock Competition, where you can upload photos of your socks to our app. Um, and then we have a BYOB it's five o'clock somewhere, Zoom happy hour at 5.30 actually, um, where we were, we're going to announce the uh, Digital FX Awards and it should be a lot of fun. 300, that means I might have to actually be reasonable. Put a, put a tie on. <laughs> uh, yeah, probably. I think I've got one somewhere. I'm just and thinking some fancy of, socks. Yeah, we are, we are really running a risk. <laughs> Open up, our, open up our picture lines to our audience believe me do not give them ideas <laughs> and that's with all due disrespect to our audience of course um yes so well exactly you say so next week there won't be an in the thick of it but um yeah please join us on wednesday and say the more than 300 because we tend to get a lot more registrations as we lead up to today as well so it should be a good event um certainly plenty to talk about in terms of liquidity recent market events and of course to look ahead to the future the week after, we have our Frankfurt Dialing Day, which is going to be looking very much post-pandemic. Um, so that will be more along the lines of, okay, so, you know, how do we stand now on, you know, reform of eyeballs, for instance? And, you know, how has the global code come out of this episode in terms of its perception? You know, has it, has it helped? Um, as well as, again, um, you know, some of the crucial issues around execution and specific, you know, I'm in the UK. I'm seeing this lockdown out in the UK. Um, it's amazing to me. I've been here now for six weeks. I think it is maybe seven weeks. And I don't think I've heard Brexit for at least five of them. 
So we'll be bringing that back to phones near you in Frank in the Frankfurt thing. So <clears throat> yeah, get on the PNL website and um, sign up for those. The uh, I'm particularly looking forward to the bring BYOB because um, this this will not be the first time I've announced the Digital Effects Awards with a drink in my hand. With a B. With, with a B. Actually, normally it's a W, isn't it? But yeah, it'll be a B this time. So um, yeah, thanks for listening, everybody. Um, stay safe and have a very good week. And we'll be back next week. Oh, sorry, we won't. We'll be back in two weeks. Thanks. <laughs> thanks. <laughs>